Let's pray. Father, we come in the powerful name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. And indeed, we rejoice that we can call you Father. We can come to you, Lord, and we thank you for the honor and the blessing that comes because of it. Father, I just pray that you would guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your word speaks to various issues, and today it speaks to our role as a citizen, not only in heaven, but a citizen here on earth. So guide us as we go to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I know we have some visitors out there. We've been journeying through this epistle, this letter that's been written by the Apostle Peter. As you're turning, if uh, you haven't made note on your calendar for the missions conference, make sure you do. We have two very powerful speakers. Uh, Bill, baby own, you won't want to miss on the 16th. On the 23rd is Michael Zinn, who is the director for Chosen People Ministries in Israel. Uh, We're flying him over for this. He's speaking on Friday night, and you need to register for that event. It's free, but make sure you sign up. You don't want to miss it. Uh, he is, was saved, uh, parents were involved in the Holocaust, and his testimony is extremely powerful. And so mark your calendars for those two. Well, we're in First Peter, and if you just joined us, we've been looking in this first part of the letter, all, up, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 10. That is our glorious salvation. It's rich in theology. He, he's laying out, this is who we are in Christ, our identity. When we get to chapter 2, verse 11, and we enter into a second section of the letter, all the way to chapter 4, verse 11, he now takes that identity that we have in Christ, and he spells it out. This is what it looks like in all areas of life. The practical applications of the theology that we've seen will call for believers to persevere in the midst of suffering for God's glory. Glory will begin this section. It will also end the section at the end of chapter 4, verse 11. More specifically, where we are in the letter, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, kind of give an overarching statement that then will be sliced into three sections. One will be on politics, and I know. And we're going to talk about politics today. You are already, I'm sure, looking for the exits uh, or where to turn the computer off uh, if you're watching online. But we will deal with, he does, and that's where we're going in the text. He's going to deal with politics today. Then the next section deals with slavery and masters, and we'll make some connections and how that really applies to us living in 2022. And then the last section under this umbrella of chapter 2, 11 through 3, 12, deals primarily with husbands and wives, though I think you can spill it over into the family. So we're going to look at those three areas as we move through the letter. And as I said, I know one should never talk about politics, but alas, here we are, right? And thankfully, it's not what Hophetus has to say, it's what the scriptures have to say. So uh, let's pray the Lord gives us wisdom and insight as we go to the text. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, Peter writes, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, that takes us back to chapter 1, verse 1. He said, you're scattered abroad. This world's not your home, but you are part of the world. And he says, for the Lord's sake, whether to 
uh, a king as supreme, and in this case it was an emperor, Nero to be exact, or to governors as those he commissions to punish wrongdoers and, and praise those who do good. For God wants you to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. I just jumped, excuse me. <laughs> I thought, that's not right. 2.11, but go back. I urge you foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct, which we'll get to in verse 13 in a minute, right? Among the non-Christians, so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. Again, there's the focus on glory, which we'll come back to at, at the end of this entire section now we get to 13. Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, whether that's a king, Nero, a supreme governor who commissioned to punish you wrongdoers and praise those who do good. For God wants you to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people, not using your freedom as a pretext for evil. He's talked about who they are in Christ and the liberties that come. He says, you can't use that as a get out of jail card. That doesn't work. He says, but as God's slaves. And then he gives us these four imperatives, these four commands. Honor all people, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the king. So let's look at this text and let's jump back to verses 11 and 12 because these two verses, as I stated, will be the overarching principles that we'll be laying out in the next several chapters, a couple chapters. He starts by dear friends, or another way to render this is beloved. Eight times in first and, first and second Peter, the apostle will remind the believers of God's love for them. Don't forget this, he says, as we journey into what is expected of you. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep the commandments, right? My commandments. And that's what he's going to lay out here. And he says, dear friends, I urge, and urge is probably not the best term. This is an intense appeal. He, he's saying, listen, this is an exhortation that I'm about to lay out for you as foreigners and exiles, individuals whose true homeland is heaven. Reminds me of Hebrews 11. And we've talked briefly on that. And notice what he says, to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. These fleshly desires are those unbridled impulses. <laughs> it, it, it's what embodies self-centeredness. And he says, listen, you need to guard this. And there are several implications in the text. First, as we look at this, what it tells us is that inward desires are controllable Listen to this, because it's contrary to what you hear in the world, because feelings are not morally neutral. Inward desires are controllable and can be consciously nurtured or restrained. That's what he's saying here, right? Be on guard. It's James 1. He says, take note. Secondly, we can imply from this text that those who have the Spirit, because he's writing to believers, those beloved that they are not exempt from fleshly desires. Oh, we died to sin, didn't we? The enslavement to sin. But the fleshly desires are still there. They can rear their ugly head. It's so important that he says here in the text, they do battle. In other words, it, it, another implication is this is not an easy endeavor. That is, 
squelching the fleshly desires. They're waging war. The term here is, is what you use of serving as a soldier. Such desires at the moment might seem attractive, harmless, and enjoyable, but they are enemies. And young people, listen carefully, because you think you're invincible when you're a teenager or in your early 20s. Giving in to these fleshly desires will weaken your spiritual state, and they will make you ineffective. Satan knows that. That's why Peter says, we're in a battle. So in other words, you, you might be able to grab a few Zs laying in a hammock, but you will not live the successful spiritual life if you're resting on your laurels. You have to be on the offense. You gotta be moving. And that's what Paul said in, in, in Romans 12. It's taking everything captive. It's, 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 it's again, it, it, we're in a battle. That's what he's highlighting. In fact, it tells us that this battle is not necessarily those around us, but as we see here, it's from within. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist in the 1800s, the founder of Moody Bible Institute, said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any person I know. Hmm. That's why Paul, it's interesting, early on in his ministry, he talks about, you know, well, I'm the least of the apostles. But by the time he gets to the latter part of his letters, as you see this progression, he says, I am the worst of sinners. Wow. Because as he walks with the Lord and he sees, he understands those fleshly desires, they are very real and they're very ugly. And that's why Peter's saying, we are in a battle and it's interesting, this isn't one battle. The war is ongoing. It's a present tense. In other words, we got to keep doing this. We got to watch. And another thing I would add is what I've learned from playing Nerf guns <laughs> with my son down in the basement. And that is, you got to know your enemy well, right? <laughs> in fighting a battle, you got to know the places where to hide, where you're most vulnerable. You need to know how many Nerf bullets you have. Uh, and, and we're in a spiritual battle. We need to know the enemy. Because he's far worse than just shooting a Nerf bullet at you. And so he says in this first verse here of 11, he said, careful, keep away from fleshly desires. The sentence in the Greek goes on into verse 12. It's, it's all one sentence. And he says, and maintain, and here's the, the positive counterpart of the sentence, maintain good conduct among non-Christians. Conduct here is not a foreign term that we've seen in this epistle. He used it in 118, uh, the evil way of the life before deliverance. He used it in 115, that our conduct needs to be holy. And, and so we see it here that it, it, it affects non-believers. And this is not foreign to the New Testament either because there are several places in Scripture where it says, your actions bear upon those who do not know Christ. So in other words, our obedience is for God's glory and for the sake of the gospel. One commentator writes, if this command to maintain a good conduct requires of Christians that they actively involve themselves in the life of the world, they are not to retreat from it. We're to be in it. It also means that if we don't live a righteous life, 
then we could be serving as a diving board used by someone to make one giant leap into hell. Yes, they're ultimately responsible before the Lord, but what a horrible indictment to be thought you were the one that further them down that path because of your testimony. Stephen Weinberg, who is far from a believer, an atheist, scientist, he said, good people will do good things. Bad people will do bad things. But for good people to do bad things, that takes religion. Yikes. Sadly, a recent poll showed that the lifestyle activities of Christians were statistically the same as those claiming to be Christians when it came to the following list. Gambling, visiting pornographic websites, taking something that didn't belong to them, saying, being part of gossip, saying things they shouldn't be, consulting a medium, having a physical fight or abusing someone, using illegal drugs, saying something to someone that's not true, getting back at someone for what they did, and consuming alcohol to the level of being drunk. Again, a recent poll said there are no differences between Christians and non-Christians. Peter says, listen, you have to maintain good contact. Why? Verse 12 states it so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify him. No wonder one of the leading reasons individuals reject Christianity is not because of evidential reasons, it's because of moralistic reasons, in particular, hypocrisy. Years ago, I worked at a family restaurant. I was a busboy. And I, in fact, everyone that was employed at the restaurant dreaded if they were assigned to the Sunday night shift. Why? Because the church crowds would come. They would leave things a total mess. They stayed forever, and they tipped very little. I was thinking through this and reminded of one of the fellow workers who was not a Christian saying, I hate when these people come in. They are something else. Matthew 5, 16, the Lord states, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. People are looking for excuses to reject the gospel we do not need to give them one, right? We're told here in the text that they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he comes or the day of visitation. And scholars debate, is this a reference to judgment? Is this a reference to salvation? And, and we read Philippians 2 as a congregation, every knee will bow. <laughs> Everyone will have to confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of the Father. But it's interesting, in a voluntary praise of glorifying God, which occurs 61 times in the New Testament, it's never used of unbelievers giving praise to God. It's used of believers. I would, I would argue that what Peter is saying here is that through your actions, they're gonna stop maligning you, and in fact, they're going to embrace the gospel and become believers. Many, not all, but many will. I think that's what he's stating here, so that when Christ comes in the day of salvation, they will be able to glorify him because they too have embraced what God is doing. 
So he says, this is what we need to be doing, right? We need to put our fleshly desires in check and we need to be doing what is right. Thank you, Peter. That's kind of up here. It's like nailing down jello. How do we get it down to the grass root, right? Where does the rubber meet the road? And so he goes into politics and this is where we all start to break out in a rash. He says in verse 13, be subject to every human institution. Notice the next clause. It's vital for the Lord's sake. The motivation for civil obedience is far from mere self-preservation. I would argue it's theologically driven. In fact, we're going to look at several points here as he talks about submission. Now, this isn't you're a doormat, but submission is willing to obey, willing to, to give respect and he, there are several things we can note about this obedience in verses 13 and 14. First, the obedience, as I just stated, it's theologically motivated. Living as the Lord has called us. This is what the call is. You, you obey the law ultimately because you're doing it for the Lord. Why? As he just stated, our good works help the gospel. It shows that we're not a hypocrite. It also, would, I would argue, obedience is God's will. Obedience to the state. Romans 13 is a familiar text. Paul talks about that. In fact, well, we do have time. Let's look at Romans 13 because it's so vital to our discussion here as we're looking at 1 Peter. So Romans 13, Paul does the same thing in Romans. He's talked about theology all the way through chapter 11. And now he lays out implications of the gospel in the believer's life. And when he gets to Romans 13, 1, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Remember, Nero is emperor. This is not a nice guy. We'll get to him in a minute. For there is no authority, watch this, except by God's appointment and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Paul goes on to state in Romans 13 that the government is actually the servant of God. He repeats it twice. And he says it would not have existed. In fact, it's the minister of God. He states in Romans 13. Thus, I would argue, as Paul and Peter are laying out, if you resist the government, you're resisting God. It's interesting Paul writes this to the church at Rome, and eight to nine years later, he will write his epistle to Titus. Eight to nine years later. Now think about all that Paul's encountered under the Roman Empire. They've not given him the Citizen of the Year Award. He's not been given a key to the city. <laughs> Far from it. He's been locked up. He's been beat, etc., etc. And eight to nine years later, after all of this, we see he has not changed his mind on how a believer is to engage the government. He reminds the people via Titus and Titus 3, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Even the most oppressive governments hold evil in check to some extent. As the text is telling us, the New Testament teaches the government has the obligation, and we see this in Romans 13, the obligation to carry out capital punishment punish criminals, thwart rebellion, defend the state. A government must punish wrongdoers and carry out justice. It is its role. 
What's the assumption by Peter and Paul and the rest of the New Testament? Sinners, we are. (laughs) Human beings are sinful. There needs to be some checks and balances. This is why anarchy is not a viable political option. Why? Because it does not assume we've all sinned. There needs to be external control. Or Marxism or socialism, I would argue, propose a new man and a new society perfected by man's own efforts. That's antithetical to what the scripture's teaching. We're evil. All these systems, I would argue, anarchy, socialism, Marxism, fail to appreciate the depravity of man, diminishes the need for creativity, disregards human responsibility, and fails to account for the blessings that come from the works of our hands. The government is to hold that in check. Unlike the Roman Empire, we live in a country where it's ruled by the people for the people. Thus, I would argue we have, as believers, a grave responsibility to speak out. Christians have a responsibility to work within the government structures to bring about change. We must remember that the government is not designed to make people good, but to curtail criminal behavior. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you know who that is, a German pastor who, by the way, and when the Nazi regime took place, he gave an address in 1933 against the Fuhrer, against the leader, and his radio announcement, his sermon was cut. Uh, Eventually he fled to Britain and received a letter from a theologian who said, you need to go back to Germany. You must shepherd the flock, and he did, and he was executed one month before World War II ended. Bonhoeffer argued that the church was the conscience of the state and must call it into account, that it must loudly object if the state was doing wrong. In a most recent book, it just came out, A Letter to the American Church, author Eric Metaxas compares the state of the church in America with the state of the church in Germany during the 1930s and early 1940s. He asked, on what issues are we as the church being silent? And for what reasons? The murder of unborn babies? The feeding damaging ideas on the subject of sexuality to young children in the schools? The confusion of older children by sexual activists concerning their gender? Socialistic and communistic ideas being pushed everywhere? And then he writes, are we really to keep silent about these things? Is it not possible that those whom we wish to evangelize are looking to us as the church who claim to have no fear but of God to speak boldly on these things and fight for the truth as we see it while there is yet time? Is this not perhaps the very thing that we lead these souls to the God we worship if we obviously so love him that we're willing to live in this way? It's a disturbing book. Uh, Erwin Lutzer called it a a cup of cold water placed in the faces of believers of the church today in America. Peter states, listen, the government is there for the Lord's sake and the church must be its conscience. The church must stand. And we as believers cannot bury our heads in the sand. I wrote down, what, what do we do? Well, believers need to be informed. 
they need to vote. It's our responsibility. Believers need to run for office, be engaged in the public square, serving on PTO, school board, or teacher's aid. Individuals need to join folks like Pam Russell and public servants' prayer and praying for those at the local, state, and federal levels. We need to take a stand at work, at school. We need to give of our time and our resources to such organizations that are standing, trying to stand against abortion, fighting against human trafficking, or providing relief for illegal immigrants. We need to write to our representatives expressing our support and our concerns. And I know the question's gonna be raised, well, can we really legislate morality? Any law is an attempt to legislate morality. <laughs> the more relevant question is not whether or we should legislate morality, but what kind of morality should we legislate? Government is to bear the sword and thus we must legislate some minimal level of morality when there's a threat to life, liberty, or property. An arsonist is not free to do what he or she wants, a rapist or a murderer. The government must step in to protect the rights of citizens. I told you I would step on toes today, but the text is clear, I would argue. Obedience to the state, it's theologically motivated. It's God's will. And as we see from the text, it's also inclusive. Nero was the emperor. The ancient writer Tacitus said, Nero put forward as guilty and afflicted with the most exquisite punishments for those called Christians. They died by methods of mockery. Some were covered with the skins of wild beasts and then torn by dogs. Some were crucified. Some were burned as torches to give light at night. Men felt that their destruction was not an account of their public welfare, but to gratify the cruelty of one that is Nero. And Peter says, honor the king. Whether you agree or not with the policies of a political officer, whether the guy or the gal is a creep, we're called to respect the office. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, gives us good reminder, God's church has been able to live and grow in all kinds of political systems, and he's right. And so our obedience, it's all inclusive. There, there's no exceptions. Well, it's a Republican or it's a Democrat. I don't like the policies. We have to show respect to the office. But I would argue one final thing here is that obedience is not absolute. Now, what do I mean by this? Human institutions cannot infringe upon the Lord's sovereignty. They should be disobeyed if they command Christians to contravene God's will. And so we come into the matter of civil disobedience. Now, if you weren't breaking in or out on a rash, I'm, I know the elders are at the, this moment. Um, what do we do with this? What do you mean? And I've heard it said, well, civil disobedience is fine if it's unconstitutional. The question, of course, is who decides when it's unconstitutional? I've heard people say, well, when there are no other options. But again, when have we reached the last resort? I've heard others say, well, if it goes against my conscience, but whose conscience is to be trusted as what is right? 
Others argue, well, if it's willing to accept the consequences, then we can rebel. But again, to what degree that willingness to accept punishment justifies breaking the law? So what are grounds for civil disobedience? Thankfully, we have the word of God to guide us, don't we? It may surprise you, but scripture records God's people disobeying human government in the Old and New Testament, and it's approved by God. In fact, he blesses them. Think of Moses' parents. They had little baby Moses, right? They were supposed to have him executed. Daniel. Or, or we go to Acts with the, the apostles standing before the Sanhedrin told, now don't do this anymore. Well, they do, they go do it again. Share the gospel. We are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but the things that are the Lord's belong to the Lord. Notice in verse 13, he says, it's for the Lord's sake. And I would argue that phrase limits our submission. For submission can never be if it does anything against the Lord's will. In other words, as Christians, we're responsible to all forms of human rightful authority, except when the command entails sin. This is what Bonhoeffer and many believers in Nazi Germany had to, to navigate, had to assess, where do we stand? Where, what do we do? Can we assassinate Hitler? Is that viable? Uh, those are questions they all had to ask. And when the Nazi comes to the, the house and says, are, are you hiding any Jews? Do I lie to the Nazi official? Where do we draw these lines? Charles Ryrie makes this profound statement. He says, whenever a believer feels obliged to disobey his government, he must be sure it is not because the government has denied him his rights, but because he has denied him God's rights. And I think that is exactly spot on. But we're not done here. Scripture reminds us, yes, when we render to Caesar, but we also render to the Lord. Secondly, in the matter of disobedience, disobedience must be done in a spirit that still honors those in authority. Daniel and his buddies were not rebel rousers. They were careful. They didn't riot. Rather, they showed respect to the officials while not compromising and finally, I think it's important to note the Christian's primary responsibilities are evangelism and godly living. True societal change and the best contribution, I would argue, is found in the gospel. And so as we look at civil disobedience, I think scripture gives us some clear direction. It is important to render our submission to the state, but not when it oversteps the bounds and the realms of sin, etc. And when we do, we still show honor to the state, understanding that ultimately lives will be changed through the gospel. Well, you didn't leave, and that's good. Hopefully, you're still online. Be subject to every human institution. In verse 15, he says, For God wants you to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is good. Our obedience is grounded in the will of God in the salvation he extends towards us and our enslavement to him. Notice the implications he gives here in verses 15 and 16, saying that we live as free people. First implication is we're free. We're no longer bondage to sin. Secondly is true freedom is doing what is right. It's important. You know, if you look at verses 12 all the way down through 15, four times he talks about doing good works. It's vital. 
And then in 15 and 16, he's telling us why. The first one of these you see in 15 is it's putting a muzzle on fools. Now, what are we talking about fools? We're talking about Proverbs 1, which says they are foolish because they do not fear the Lord, walk in his ways, and thus their ignorance is culpable. He says, you want to silence that. You want the world to say, no, this, you're saying this about this group, but they don't match. It's not right. You know what you're talking about. And so, in our behavior, it's putting a muzzle on fools. Secondly, it's pushing a millstone for the father. It's, it's being his slave. We, I wrote, we're free men, but not free to live as we desire. We're slaves to God. And that's the beauty, because in so serving the Lord, we find true freedom. And so, Peter says to these believers, live as free people, understand that you're God's slave. Well, Peter will close out this section with four commands. The first of these is to honor all people. It goes back to that good conduct. It goes back to verses 11 and 12. We're to be courteous and respectful to all. Why? Because he or she is created in the image of God. That's why. You know, when you start criticizing someone or you're making fun of someone, be careful. They're created in the image of God. That's an affront to the Lord. That's how he's made them. So honor all people. And then he takes it up a notch. Yeah, you honor all, you respect all, but to your brothers and sisters, you love them. Those are the brotherhood, the fellow believers. This isn't new in the letter. Look back at chapter one, verse 22. He says, you have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere, mutual love. So on one level, we honor all people. On the next level, he says, but you're to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them. Some are more loving than others, or lovable, right? This is, you have to love them and all that it entails. Then he takes it up another notch. And he says, ah, but fear God. It, this is, again, nothing new to the letter. He mentions this in 117. Look back at 117. He says here, and if you address this father, the one who impartially judges, Live out the time of your temporary residence here in reverence. Fear God. He's in charge. That's why I obey the state, because I fear God. It's his will that there is a government in place. This is my ultimate allegiance. And so he says, fear God. And then, you think he would end here, but then he goes, oh, and honor the king. One, it bookends the whole section. We started with the king, we're going to end with the king, Nero. But you go, why here? Careful. Notice what he says about the king? You don't love him. <laughs> you don't fear him. You honor him. What does Peter do? He takes the king, the emperor, and he puts him right down with all the people. And he says, you show respect like you do anyone else. But he is not the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is the Lord that we honor. This is the one, I mean, we fear, we love, and then we honor all people. And so you see this, and I love how he draws the connection there with all people in verse 17, but takes us full circle back to where we started, and that is honor the king. Honor our commander-in-chief. 
at least the office, show respect to the office, pray for the one in office. Why? Because the Lord commands it. For the Lord's sake. Well, there's three principles there in your notes, and you can look at those. Uh, we've highlighted those through the sermon. Why? Why all of this? Ultimately, Peter states clearly so that the world, again, may see our good works and glorify God when he appears. It's part of demonstrating the genuineness of our faith, chapter 1, verse 7, a faith possible because of our empty way of life. We were ransomed by precious blood like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ, chapter 1, 18 and 19. So this morning, we come to the communion table. <laughs> it can be convicting, can't it? Because when we come to the communion table, Paul was clear to the church at Corinth. He says, a person should examine himself or herself first, and in this way, let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks without careful regard for the body, eats and drinks judgment against himself. And so we're reminded, yes, we are citizens here on this earth. We need to be involved. We need to be praying for those in leadership. But our ultimate citizenship is in heaven if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you know Christ as your Savior, then you understand that we are a royal priesthood, that we are called to be holy. And as Peter is trying to show in this section, that spills out in all sorts of areas. So this morning, let's spend some time in prayer, examining our lives. How are we doing, not only in the public square, but in our own private lives as royal priesthood? citizen of the U.S., you can't vote. <laughs> There's things that you don't have privilege to because you're not a citizen. And this is designed for those who are, citizenship is in heaven. It's designed for those who know Christ as their Savior. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today is the day. Familiar text, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For those of us who know Christ, we come to this, again, remembering what Christ has accomplished. So let me pray, and then we will partake. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you that our citizenship indeed is in heaven, that we are your people. We're not vagabonds wondering where in the world we're to land, because ultimately our home is with you, and we thank you. 
We thank you that we are yours and that we have been called to be a royal priesthood. We, we are to be the salt and the light in a world that desperately needs to hear. Father, we need to be the conscience of the state. We need to be a, a, a role in this society in which we live so that when people see us, they go, there's someone that is different. There is someone there that, that is walking what they are talking about. And I want to know more. May we not be a hindrance to what you're trying to accomplish in the lives of people through the gospel. And Father, all of that's been made possible as Peter's highlighted several times already in this letter. It's been made possible because your son came and died on a cross for our sins. He paid the price. And so Father, as we come to the communion table, we rejoice and we thank you. And it's the name of our Savior Jesus we pray. Amen. Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it, fully knowing full well what was going to transpire that next morning. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as the bread was ground between the teeth, knowing full well what was to transpire, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. He closed out with the cup and the bread by stating, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion looks backwards to what Christ has accomplished, but it also looks forward. And what a day, right? What a day when we will no longer honor a king, but we'll bow before the king of kings and lay our crowns before him and worship him. What a day. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. These are hard words, and how this exactly plays out, we'll disagree or agree on certain principles. But the, the fact is, Lord, we need to be in submission. We, we need to be being about doing good works. Why, as the text says, so that we can exalt you. We can bring glory to your name. And so, Father, may we do that through your strength, through your power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. In Jesus' name.